0: Hello everyone and welcome to Wise Brussels and our series on women and leadership. I'm Ilana Beitel. I'm a member of Wise Brussels, that's Women in International Security, and I'm your host for this conversation with people who are helping to advance our organization's goals of empowering women in the fields of peace, security and defence. In this episode, we'll be discussing the realities and challenges of getting women into senior positions in organisations and we're very pleased to have with us Ingrid Gunnison, who has held a number of very senior positions in the world of business and is a board member of both European Women on Board and Women on Board Belgium. We also have with us Annabelle McLaren-Thompson, PhD and former social entrepreneur, who is now a senior research associate at headhunting firm Perret Laverre. Ladies, it is wonderful to welcome you to this program and wonderful to uh, meet two such successful women. And as often the case in this uh, podcast, we start out by each person introducing themselves. So maybe Ingrid, you could tell us a little bit about yourself and your career.
1: So um, I started by uh, realizing my dream. I wanted to be a teacher of young kids and I realized that. But uh, in the meantime, I had also an owned company uh, in multimedia, you have to imagine that it's 30 more than 30 years ago. There was even not internet, but I uh, started this company in multimedia. Afterwards, I was four years in headhunting. So I was I did headhunting for several companies and one of the company was uh, Xerox. Uh, they hired me and I started there as sales rep and I ended 27 years later as CEO of Belgium and Luxembourg. Um, it was a very high competitive uh, market in printing, but also in digital alternatives of document flow, outsourcing. So I went from analog to digital to outsourcing. So I had each time to reinvent myself. Afterwards, I was uh, for two years and a half in the telco world, B2B, including IoT. So also a very um, exciting uh, world, um, also leading to 5G uh, in the future. And then I decided that uh, when I had two board mandates, I had one board mandate with AG insurance and one uh, within um, an IT startup, Digita, that I decided that I would do that full-time. And in the meantime, also my own company, B2Bs, in consultancy and advice for small and medium-sized companies and governments. And we are going from strategy to execution, so I decided I'm going full-time for board mandates and my company being on the other side and not only in the operations. So um, today I have um, six mandates, so one uh, AGI. Uh, One uh, Koninklijk Museum of Schone Kunsten in Antwerp, so one of the oldest museums in uh, Belgium. One in Women on Board, one in European Women on Board. And I'm sitting in two advisory boards, Digita and ML6, both in digital platforms and artificial intelligence. So that's what I uh, do. Um, Same time, I'm married, I have four kids and have two uh, grandkids.
0: Wow, you have to take a deep breath when you hear that because that's really, really, really an amazing career, an amazing woman, and very, very inspiring. But I already note that you have at least one thing in common with Annabelle, is that you also have a headhunting pass. But before we get to that, Annabelle, could you tell us a bit about yourself?
2: Sure, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm originally from Germany, um, but spent a very long time actually of my life in Scotland as well. Um, I am in Amsterdam now since nearly three years. Um, before coming to Amsterdam, I spent some time in in Mexico um, working with artisans, documenting their techniques and pottery techniques. And innovating processes and products, making it more sustainable. Before that, I did a postdoc in biotech commercialization in Scotland. Um, And before that, I did a PhD in human geography in socially sustainable development in rural areas in Scotland. And to finance my PhD studies, I worked in an IoT firm. (laughs) So there's another link (laughs) in an (laughs) IoT firm and built up their internal sales department. Um, So, yeah, I am. as I said, in Amsterdam, working as a senior research associate in um, parent labor since three years. And um, yeah, I guess I think what I would like to add is what drives me or what gets me out of bed in the morning is really the, the prospect of contributing to creating a world that is more equal, more inclusive and more diverse. Um, and particularly when it comes to gender. So Making, doing my bit, making a dent in the world in terms of getting more female representation at leadership level across especially higher education and not for-profit sector.
0: Excellent. Um, again, hugely inspiring. One of the things we love to do on this podcast is also make it intergenerational. So it's wonderful to have two women of different generations who have already achieved so much. Just one more clarification before we go ahead. Perhaps, Annabelle, you can tell us what a headhunter actually is.
2: Absolutely, more than happy to. Um, So a headhunter in my case is the person who looks for people based on a client brief, um, looks for people all across the world, maybe in a specific geography to present to the client a group of candidates who are ideally interested in a particular role. So you get a brief, they need certain experiences they need certain interests um they need certain skills and you engage with those people and to get a sense for whether or not they are interested in the role whether or not they fit the brief and then they are presented to the client that really is my job in a nutshell
0: <laughs> and what's the difference between headhunting and for the sake of argument an employment agency
2: so it's it's the dynamic, I guess. So I proactively research, which I guess is also why my title is a research associate. So I trawl through the internet um and identify people and engage with them rather than people contacting me. So that, I guess, is the the key difference between recruitment and executive search.
0: Okay. And Ingrid, what are boards? Because I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to us. And we've said that you are a board member, that you sit on women on boards. What is a board? What is a board? Yes. Okay.
1: So in company, if it's well lit, you have a governance model. And this governance model is called tripod. And the tripod is starting, you have the board that are non-executive. So they are deciding on the strategy, they are looking after the figures, they are looking after main aspects, like for example, on this moment COVID, to, to give that as an example. Then you have the executive team, uh, so the Xco like like they called it. Um, they are uh, presenting to the board what they want to do, what they think the best strategy is, and they are proposing sometimes two or three models. And then on that moment, the board is deciding and then it's executed by the executive committee. And then you have the operations that the third layer that is then on that moment putting it in operations. And so board is normally there as a governance to be sure that we have the right strategy for the company, all the different components, and that we are looking after the figures that we are going in the right direction and that we are in line with the business plan at short and not long term in a nutshell. Yeah. Of course, you have also all the legal aspects that are seen in, in the board, um, like legal pursuits and things like that. Uh, we have also the aspects of CSR that is discussed within the board. And you see that on the agenda of a board, more and more is less on the finance and more and more on the other aspects, as I just mentioned.
0: Right. And I'm asking you both. Why is it so difficult for, to get women to be part of boards. <laughs> Where do we start? <laughs> <laughs> from the very beginning, because I think mean, this is everything that everyone assumes is understood, but yeah. actually isn't understood at all. So maybe Ingrid, maybe if you want to, as somebody who sits on board, if you can start from your perspective. I would say I can see it
1: from the pers- perspective of women on board. We have three hundred seventy ladies in our in our um, lists of boardable ladies. We have a very strong nomination committee. So before you are. Coming in this list, you really have to be boardable. You need to have certain skills, uh, certain expertise, and expertise in senior roles. Nevertheless, companies are always saying they don't find women. And what I say on that, you don't look enough. You have to look more. There are still ladies that want to be in board. It's only for the little Belgium. We have this 370 ladies, and, and I'm pretty sure there are much more ladies that are boardable. But when we see how the mandates are filled in, they are not always filled in by a headhunter. Um, two of my mandates were with headhunter and always was with my of midwife. Right? So my network, my social network. Yeah? Um, and then you are looking after who knows who. Yeah? Um, that's one thing. the second thing is that I see, and that's not only for man and woman, but they are always looking for a certain skill. Before it was audit or finance, but you see that more and more companies need to have a focus on organization, on HR, on CSR. But still, when they're looking and you see the profiles, the finance aspect is still a very heavy aspect. Yeah? Um, And of course, we women, we we are not all uh, finance. So when I was looking for boards, I was not a finance person. I was ex-CEO and ex-co-member. But they always said, yes, we would like to have people with more audit uh, experience or finance experience. So now coming to your question for women, I think there is still an issue that when you have to replace someone, it means that this person has to leave. And you see in a lot of boards that men are taking a seat for several mandates, three, four, five mandates. So they're sitting there since 15, 20 years. So, of course, this mandate has to be freed up. And if you free up, that means that you are replacing a man by a woman. And that's in some companies not always
0: easy. All right. Annabelle, how do you find it from the headhunter's point of view?
2: Well, I find that there are many stages at which, so say from all the way at the beginning, as you say, Ingrid, finding people, I mean, putting in that effort to find female candidates, you have to put in more effort, not because they're less qualified people, but they're just more difficult to find, especially because we still live in a system where women um, face much more, many more barriers um, and have to fight harder. And so finding female candidates is more difficult. You need to invest more time. But then also throughout the entire recruitment process, there are various barriers. I think starting from, and I'm referring specifically actually to academia right now, starting with how we look at potential candidates. What do we use as criteria to qualify them? Um, Then going on to actually I guess confidence is also an issue in the entire process. So taking that time to really help and support, build that confidence as well. Um, And then going forward, the actual presentation of a so-called long list or short list. So the presenting the entire pool of candidates, you have to have, I mean, there's, there's quite a lot of I don't want to say science behind it, but there's quite a lot of thinking behind how to put together such a shortlist to kind of entice the board, for example, or the finding committee to consider um, female candidates, for example. You have to think about numbers and such. But then also the next step in terms of the finding committee, who is the finding committee? What are the biases? I mean, if they're just looking for more of the same, well, then... It's just going to be really difficult to change that so it's about challenging those biases and then there's another step which is when should um a female candidate then be appointed is the organization that they're coming into actually ready for that change or do they expect this person to come in into something that is entirely based on let's say male needs um Yeah. So there's so many points. (laughs) I I think there could be like a podcast on every single point of that along the process, but it's, it's just so many barriers. It's, it's really hard. It sounds like it.
0: Ingrid, what was your first
1: experience when you joined the board? My first board was the board in Widdink-Serox when I was uh, the CEO. So I was also um, a member of the board. So that was an easy one because it was a corporate a multinational. So it was not um, as big as as, as other uh, independent companies. Afterwards, I was in a board of ADM. Um, uh, it, it was a social network in IT so that we put young people and more senior people together so it was a very large network so that was a nice thing to do and the most where uh, I learned the most out of it was uh, uh, with American Chambers um, where I was for four years in the board and in the nomination committee and there they did it really with a governance model and how it should be it was very professional and then of course the biggest one is of course uh, AG Insurance eh? it's a company of 5,000 people that was a very serious company and yeah? we started with an um, huge induction program. I saw everyone several hours they have to introduce uh, the executive committee. So I learned what it was insurance and all those things and everything behind. Um, And that was a a big board. We are with 15 people in the board. Um, uh, We were at that moment with three ladies uh, in the board. Um, So in the beginning, I was a bit quiet and I was more listening, (laughs) (laughs) to be honest. But now, of course, after two years and a half, I feel uh, very comfortable to be there. But in the beginning, it's a bit scary when you are in
0: such a big board, I must say. Scaring is a big word, but it's okay. Yeah. But, but is that because you just sort of were the new person or because you were also a woman?
1: No, no. i never felt myself as a woman when I'm in meetings. I'm feeling like everyone else in the room. Mm-hmm. If they have a problem, it's their problem and not mine. So, no, it's not that point. But they are all uh, very specialized people in finance and insurance. And so, automatically, when you are not coming from this sector, I was hired as board member to have a view on organization and on uh, strategy and on IT. So, automatically, I don't have all these skills in insurance and finance. So, I felt a little bit that... Oh, from the seven hours board, it was six hours on finance and insurance. So my added value was very small. It's only the fact that when you change, I have different sectors where I work in, as as I mentioned before, each time you have to learn this sector and you have to know what is important in this sector so that you can fit in it. Yeah. One of the things that uh, Annabel didn't mention, but I think it's an important one. When you have candidates, there must be a good fit uh, between the different board members. Uh, because the, the purpose of a board is of course working together and have a, a cohesion uh, to come together to a good decision for the company. And that's important that you have a good fit as personality for a board. It's a totally different personality
0: as being in an executive committee. Let's move back to the executive committee or to an executive position. Annabel, when you're recruiting for such a position, director for a new think tank or uh, for a company do you find the same issues there where how does women or being a woman fit in with recruiting for that level
2: to be honest it depends on the particular well discipline I guess as well so if they in terms of content so rather than skills leadership skills and such it it might be that it's a particular role where expertise is required in a field where generally there are more male candidates. It depends, but in gen- generally speaking, there's always an issue. So the, the higher you go in terms of seniority, the lower the number of female candidates. That's just across all sectors, across all organizations, across all yeah, senior Leadership roles. Is yeah.
0: that because women aren't coming forward to apply for these jobs? How do you explain this?
2: Well, I th- I think that there's so many factors that kind of work together here. So I think it starts with what role the women play in society, what how school works, how university works, how there are differences in terms of characteristics that are viewed by. Well, actually, now I'm just thinking of a report that the UN, I think, published a couple of months ago or last year, perhaps, around biases against women. And I mean that across everyone. So it seems that generally speaking, everyone is more negatively biased towards women. So I think that also comes into play into what their career trajectories are, how their career develops, what they actually dare to do, what they don't dare to do, if they apply, if they don't apply. So for example, I I often have situations where, <laughs> where male candidates are very sure of themselves, even though they only tick, let's say, one of 10 boxes, and female candidates tick seven out of 10 and say, I don't think I'm qualified. So there's so many um, reasons for the final pool of candidates, unfortunately, being more male dominated than female that feed in together. So I think the only way to reduce all those barriers is taking kind of a holistic approach and looking at all the different issues that women face. And when I I think I would also like to say, when I say women, I'm, I'm aware that you know, how you identify in terms of gender, obviously, there's more to women and male, but I think for the ease of conversation, I'm just going to refer to um, women and men at this point.
1: You are right. eh? The two sectors where I worked in Orange and Xerox were very very technical sectors. I remember when I started with Xerox, it was one of my customers. They were looking for a sales manager. And they, they would say, we want to have a man with a woman who is not working um, and with kids so that he was the earner at home. And I said, but I can't. I can do the job. After four years, I knew Xerox a bit. So I said, I want to do this job. I said, over my dead body. We will never have lady in management. And I said, let me try. So I started their sales. I went back a little step, uh, I did a step back, uh, and I started there as sales. I was the first, um, yes, uh, female manager, and I thought it would be difficult, but it was not so difficult because as soon as you start and it's going well, automatically, yes, you have you have the credits and it's it's working. But it is not easy in this market, so I agree totally with you. But the second thing that I say is also this inclusion part. How are you? in this company uh, do you feel that you can be your own or do you have to be a man uh, and act as a man and, and be dressed a bit like a man and not too sexy as you said in the beginning of the call that's something that i i, I didn't change myself
0: mm-hmm.
1: i said to myself i am who i am i have my strengths but i will always be sure that i uh, achieve my objectives and by achieving your objectives automatically they will see you as equal as the others But it's a bit more difficult, I would say, for a lady, as for a man in specific sectors, that's true.
0: I think you're very right. I mean, one of the things that's coming across very strongly from both of you, and I can attest to myself in in my life and my career, is self-confidence. You're either confident, you know, Ingrid, you said before that, you know, you didn't have a problem sitting on a board because it was their problem, not your problem, which is an attitude I've often taken myself, I remember when I first started working in the UN, um, I realized I was a woman, I was Jewish, I was Israeli. Um, So that was more or less three strokes against me for a variety of reasons. So I decided either they had a problem or I had a problem. If I had a problem, I should probably leave now because it's unsurmountable. So my attitude is always just behave completely normally and it's up to somebody else to be rude to you or to attack you or to not accept you. And actually you'll find, in my opinion on the whole, that people are less inclined to do that unless you make it possible for them. So making it possible for them is not doing the job well, is not, you know, a variety of issues like that. But I do think there's an issue of realizing that it's up to you to do something. It's not up to everyone else to do it. But having said that, there is a big question. How do you instill confidence in women? Because I think societally, you're still brought up to, to, to think you're the weaker sex or the second sex or something that doesn't make it as easy. It's, it's just what I'm thinking, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Annabelle, what do you feel about that?
2: I think actually that it, maybe it's not necessarily anymore being the weaker sex or having that feeling, but it's more kind of implicit in many things of, of how how we live, how we interact. So, I don't know, say a certain behaviour of women um, is seen negatively whereas that exact same behavior so for example being assertive might seem to be something really positive like yeah we need someone who's very assertive then you see a woman being assertive and then it's like oh no she's being all bossy so you know we get I think as women we often get a lot of feedback from interactions with society that the things that we're doing might not be the way that we should be doing things so it's a so i think it's not even consciously the majority of the time but it's just the way that society has developed unfortunately that's that's my view i think also a big part plays for example networks i've come um i've participated in research around confidence um and was and was completely surprised when i heard that it's a normal thing for men to always be part of networks where you find out and are mentored and it's it's just a normal thing i I had no idea I had no idea, so I think those kind of setups, those social support networks, because they're still missing, I think that also greatly affects confidence in women um and yeah i th- I think actually I would like to make a tiny little plug in for someone because I did a an amazing confidence um course with Lauren Curry. It's called upfront um and it's just There's so much we have to unlearn as women about what we can do, what we can't do, and having conversations about it. Like, for example, this podcast, I think it's amazing that you're doing this podcast and bringing women together to talk about these things. So, yeah, I think it's just worth to say that.
1: (laughs) So, And I want to pick up on that. There is a study that was made. You had the same CV uh, and the same um, requests for a job. And if you have, for example, 10 aspects... A man on two or three aspects, as you mentioned also already, Annabelle, they say, I can do the job because the rest I will learn on the job. For a lady, it's not seven, but the 80%. So if they don't have 80% they can take on to say, I have this experience, they will not Uh, go for this solicitation, they will not enter their their, um, CV. So that's one of the things that we want to do with European Women on Board, is bringing them together on the second aspect that of says is a network. It's very important. That's one of my big beliefs, you need to have an internal network inside of the company, for support, that they can support you, an external network to give you more information, and certainly also to do trainings. Uh, I still do trainings. Uh, two or three year, uh, a year. Uh, I have uh, just done my hiberna uh, training and then um, before it was a finance training, but each year I think you need to train yourself so that you are learning and then by learning, you will feel more comfortable. But your Dear woman on board that's one of the things we do is creating this network of this ladies so that if they have questions, they can ask it and then, you know, they can receive uh, support. And during the sea level school, so the academy that we have for those ladies, one of the parts is indeed also trainings on, on, on those aspects to be more certain and feeling more comfortable.
0: Uh, so it's important. And we are not learning that at school. Eh? But don't you think maybe it's important to have those networks for younger women too, like women in international security? Not, you know, in order to arrive at the point in which you can be in a senior leadership position, don't you need to build up that confidence through networks earlier? Yes, I saw uh,
1: one of a very interesting um, article and analysis of Dome, and they mentioned it's starting already by the high school. Even high school, they are not, and certainly in those. Specific programs like engineers, etc. If they are not doing something for the ladies, after the studies, one of the three ladies will not work in that specific area. One on three. Already during university, you are losing already those bright ladies within a job. As soon as they are there, and there is not an inclusive leadership within the company where they are accepting that ladies can have another mindset or another way of working, they are losing. 80% 80% of those ladies within the five years. Wow. And then, of course, when the pipeline is not so full, automatically you, it's easier to, to put men if you have only two candidates of women and eight of, of men. But we have to work indeed uh, at a lower uh, entry level uh, and have them uh, with us. But I saw uh, bright ladies that I said, why do you want, uh, don't you want to be in executive committee?
0: And they didn't want. They, they were... Well, but they were afraid about it. They didn't want the responsibility, or they were afraid that um, they wouldn't get on with the male colleagues.
1: No, 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 not specifically the last one, but certainly because they liked what they do now. They have it under control. They have to go out of the comfort zone. Of course, when you are at the top, automatically you you are more seen. So automatically, they say they will also see my errors, and then they don't want they want that they don't want to be all in the spotlight
2: that goes back to confidence again right because if you are if you interact with people on a continual basis who for example are role models and they show you that actually yes this role might seem really out there and you know you are much more seen of course but at the end of the day it's your job and you're being asked to do that because you're already good at what you're doing so then Yeah, kind of getting to know what that role means without getting into the role and just saying, right, I'm going to do it because I can. Yeah, I think it goes back to confidence.
0: Absolutely. Here's a question. Do you think, Annabelle, it would make a difference if CVs were anonymized? In other words, it was
2: unclear if you were a man or a woman. I think it would, but I think we would even have to go a little bit further. And I think having CVs, for example, focusing more on experience um, and skills rather than qualifications. I think that might also change in how we look at candidates and evaluate them because then it it suddenly comes down to what can that person do rather than where were they and what are their qualifications. Um, so... Yeah, I, I, I do think that anonymizing CVs would make a difference. I, I bet there are studies on that. I have to say I've not looked at them, but I bet there are. Ingrid is smiling. <laughs> yes. Yes, they made a
1: CV and on exactly the same CV, yeah? maybe the colors were a bit different. Yeah? but the, the CV, the content and what they learned, what they did was exactly the same. Uh, and they changed only the name, a masculine and a female name. And uh, 80% of the people were choosing for the masculine. All right. The same
2: CV. All right. Yeah, yeah, and that goes back to the UN study exactly. How we as a society—I mean, 80% of all of us have a negativity bias towards women. Like for me, when I heard that first, I just—I couldn't really. I think it took quite some time for me to really appreciate that. It's not
1: good. <laughs> but also, women, eh, Annabelle. It's not only the man eh? it's Yeah, all. yeah,
2: exactly yeah across so yeah. across entire society everyone 80 percent of everyone basically has a negativity bias so we are as women are also biased negatively towards us as women it's so ingrained i mean to unpack all of that and unlearn everything that we've learned is a long trajectory <laughs>
0: It is. The question is, how can we get women into um, what's known as the C suite? And how do we get women ready to be at board level? Perhaps you women have some tips. Ingrid? I would say the first
1: one is dare to jump. As we mentioned before, uh, with the CV, 80% for the ladies has to be the checkbox there for the the man. It's only 20 to 50%. I say dare to jump. Uh, That's the first thing. Dare to change, uh, do different jobs. Uh, in different areas but also in different sectors because automatically you will uh, gain more experience and um, more credit also to be in sea level uh, because you see on that moment that you can do it, that you can change, that you can adapt. Um, The third one is be a Darwinist, continue to learn. The the world is changing also in the companies, as I mentioned, with Xerox eh, from analog to digital, you have to learn. You have to continue to learn all your life also when you are in the boards. Um, Follow one or two courses a year in finance or in governance or whatever, but be a Darwinist. Everyone knows what a Darwinist is, isn't it? Uh, It's not the strongest, not the the, the smartest, but the one who is more capable to adapt that will survive. eh? Grow your network, we already talked about network, that you need to have an internal and an external network and dare to ask for a mentor and a coach, a mentor inside of the company that can help you, a coach outside of the company that can be a sparing partner. And then maybe as last is um, act as your boss. Always think about your level plus one. If you have an issue that you need to solve within your job, what would your boss do? What, how will we think about that? And maybe while doing that, you will learn to be already in your next stage. And as last, program your career for the coming five years. Know where is the end point that you want to have and know that you will change during those five years to achieve that career. path. while studying, uh, while also taking projects that are aligned with that. Uh, that are the five tips that I would give. Wow.
2: Um, Annabelle, Do you want to add? That's going to be difficult. (laughs) So that was an amazing list, Ingrid. Um, I think the only thing that I'm just thinking in addition to that is maybe focusing on progress rather than perfection. Mm -hmm. So not waiting for the perfect moment because it will never come. Never. Um, And, yeah, getting out of feeling comfortable in the uncomfortable zone.
0: One last thing I would ask you, though, Annabelle, As somebody who does, again, using myself as an example, not have a standard CV, one of the things I have found over the years is both HR departments and headhunters actually recoil. They want the standard CV. They want to see you've got the MBA and that you've worked X amount of years in that company and Z amount of years somewhere else. So how do we reconcile what I consider to be excellent tips
2: from Ingrid with the reality out there? I think Then marketing and sales come into play a little bit. So being a bit creative in terms of how you present yourself. So thinking clearly about what skills and expertise did you develop in a role. So putting the focus on what you can do rather than where you worked. And ve- being very clear on what the red thread is in your CV and being not being shy of just saying what it is that you've achieved. Put in numbers, put in numbers, put in numbers, any kind of numbers. I mean, I guess the initial sense will be to boast about oneself, but boast, just shout about um, yeah, things that you've achieved. And I totally agree with you. At
1: a certain moment, I was for a board, Annabelle, with 65 candidates. And I said, I want that board. So I, I, I wanted to be different. So I paid someone that made a film. And in the film, I was discussing. And each time, the headlines came up. That said, Who is here at Connison? And I could three or four points. What can you expect from me? Three or four points. And it was, you know, video together with a bit of PowerPoint. And I had the job. And I said it made a difference because you were the only one uh, sending us a little film of four minutes so that we knew directly who you
0: were and uh, it helped. Okay, a video CV. I think that one is a wonderful recommendation for those who can do it and those who have the time. One last issue which I would raise, we're recording this at the end of August On the day in which a news report came out that female board members at FTSE 100 companies are paid 40% less than men. Absolutely. And I don't suppose it's different in other countries from that point of view. So again, Ingrid, I'm going to come back to you on this one to start with, do you feel that that is the case everywhere? Do you feel that women are paid less or do women have to fight more to get paid the same or do women not, not even know that they're being paid less? So for boards, the boards I have, it's very transparent. Uh, so we have each year, the
1: amounts that are paid on each board member. So we, we know exactly who is paid what, and, and that's the same for everyone, for the man and for the woman. Uh, if you are in uh, such big companies, it's, it's it must be transparent because it's also published. So that there is no issue. I saw so also for the nomination of the CEO uh, of AG and also of other, other executive committee members that were um, recruited there, they're always mentioning, uh, where the person would be compared to the other people uh, that are in the same type of function, and they don't allow them to have another level. So that's a good sign. Now, it's not everywhere like that. Um, I saw also indeed that uh, even also in my previous executive committee uh, jobs that I was not paid as much as uh, the person I replaced that was a man. Uh, I mentioned it um, and um, and I continue to mention it till it was solved. Good for you, good for you. Uh, you must not accept that. And you can say do it in different times, that's not an issue. It must not be everything on the same moment, but then you say, okay, after six months and maybe after one year, why not? And then try to to fill the gap. But still, it exists. I must be honest; it's, it exists. Yeah, but yeah. not in course I am. It will be more on executive committee levels, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. Annabelle, are you aware of this when you're recruiting people that if you recruit a woman, she's going to be paid less than if you recruit a man?
2: Unfortunately, yes, I think it's generally the case. Um, And I think what, well, what is happening within recruitment at the moment or one thing is an effort to be transparent about the salary that is on offer and rather the traditional way of, well, what is your salary? because that will just keep up the inequalities because they are most likely already being paid less, so then you will still pay them less, is that you provide a salary range. Um, I personally more and more tend towards that because I just think, what does it matter what someone has as a salary at the moment to give them the new salary? Um, so yes, I'm I'm aware of that. I'm definitely aware of that um, but I have a feeling that things are changing maybe a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, very much, let's hope so. One of the things I would like to suggest is maybe that from now on, headhunters, especially the one that's sitting here with us, would use the resources of Women on Boards Europe when they're looking for jobs. And so how many do you have there, 360.
1: For Women on Board Belgium, we have a 370 and two or three uh, ladies. And in European Women on Board, we have a network of 2,500 people.
0: So I think it's fair to say, Annabelle, as the representative here of the headhunting community that next time it won't be possible to say that there are no good women candidates. All you have to do is get in touch with Women on Boards Belgium. There is, I know, Women on Boards Netherlands. And of course, there's the Women on Board Europe. And I'm sure amongst all of those, you will always find good women candidates for very senior positions.
2: Yes, amazing. (laughs) I will be in touch very soon, Ingrid.
0: <laughs> uh, we
1: do see our GDI,
2: our Gender Diversity
1: Index, we are doing each year. I don't know if you know him.
2: Not yet. So know. It's already
1: the second time. And there is good news, uh, because we are doing this uh, analyze on around 700 uh, corporate uh, companies to see how the board and executive committee and local management, how it is with uh, the female versus the gender uh, balance. Uh. And now we have 30% of these 700 companies that are close to gender equality. So that means 50 50. That's only 13, you will say, but already it's 13. But we have now 87 companies that um, were um, 40% on board and senior uh, level um, executive female. And before it was only 47. So in one year time, we see that there is really a step going forward. But we see also, and I have to be honest, that most of them are coming from countries where there is a quota. Mm -hmm. Only Sweden and Finland who does not have a quota is going very fast and very um, in a good direction on the 50-50 balance. But the other countries like UK and France, that's because there is a quota, and automatically you will find on that moment in the listed companies, the 30, 40% that is required. So I think if we want to push that, we need to have quotas everywhere. As, and as soon as we will have it and we will be on the quota, then maybe we can release it. But we see that the countries that have a quota are moving very fast. Yeah,
0: that's very interesting. Thank you both so very, very much. That's a wrap on this episode of Wise Brussels Voices. Thank you so much to our guests, Ingrid Gunnison and Annabel McLaren Thompson. We'd also like to thank our technical team at Free Range Productions please continue the discussion with us at Wise Brussels on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. And if you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Wise Brussels Voices and listen to all our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast application. Learn more about Wise Brussels on our website, wise-brussels.org. I'm Ilana Beitel. Thanks for joining us, and stay tuned for more great conversations.